so uh, this morning, we're going to jump back into talking about Jesus, which has been, I just have to say, so good for me, so refreshing. I love teaching through any book of the Bible with you guys, like talking about it. But there's just been something real sweet about the Gospels, um, about going through the Gospel of Mark that um, has been filling me up and inspiring me. And every week, just a different chance to get to know Jesus from a different angle, to see him through someone else's eyes. It's been really cool. Uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 6 this morning. So if you have your Bible and want to go to Mark chapter 6, we're going to be there. Um, but I'm going to ask, when was the last time that you had like a good scare in your life? You know, just like something that just kind of catches you off guard and you're terrified. Um, there's some actual scary things in my life. But I, I'm going to take you guys back to my college years. The most scared I've been most often was when I was in college and living with a, a couple of roommates in this like attic apartment. In a, it, was a, it was like a condemned 100-year-old uh, house that was owned by a church, so of course they rented it out to college students, you know, and, um, and I was there, and this old house was like, uh, just built in such a way that nothing's convenient, you know, so all the light switches are up in the front of the house, so the light switches for what's in the back, you just couldn't find them, so what would happen is I would brush my teeth, getting ready for bed, and you come out of the bathroom, and it's just like the entire house is just pitch black, and I knew one of my neighbors, or one of my neighbors, one of my roommates was going to be there waiting, like some creative spot waiting to just scare the junk out of me, you know? And he did it all the time. And it was pretty wild, all the spaces in this old house where he'd just jump out from somewhere he wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't expect him to be. There was actually a long story, um, but he, my, one of my roommates came to own a goat at one point, um, which, you know, the, the stuff that happens in college that's normal is just weird. But the, the house was like, it was an attic apartment, so there was this whole run along the side, this crawl space, that connected inexplicably the kitchen to the bathroom. So you'd come out of the shower, and all of a sudden there's just like a goat standing there, you know, that, that had been led through the crawl space. So just, it was a, it was a terrifying time in life. I, I, the, the, the scene that we're going to step into in the Gospel of Mark um, is, is like the, the ultimate, like, gotcha, like, scared, freaked. We're going to see the disciples terrified. And it's because Jesus, being as creative as he is, they're in a boat trying to cross the other side, and all of a sudden they see Jesus just come walking up on the water. You know what I'm saying? It's like the ultimate, like, wasn't expecting to see that today. You know what I'm saying? And so Jesus scares them. The beautiful thing is just like everything. I, I, like I, could, I feel like I would want to laugh if I could see the video of this, you know? Um, but, the, but the reality is they get scared by Jesus, and I love that, but there, there's this deeper sense of their fear of Jesus and what it means, what it says about them, what it says about Jesus. We've actually seen so far in the Gospel of Mark, we're, we're uh, not even halfway through yet, we've seen several times where people are just terrified of Jesus. It happened to the disciples in a boat one time before in, in uh, chapter 4. They're in the storm and Jesus, they're, they're afraid from the storm, but then Jesus calms the storm and they then get freaked out of Jesus like, who is this, you know? They're terrified. Um, uh, Herod, we actually saw in um, a couple of uh, weeks ago, Herod was there, and he's terrified of Jesus because he thinks he's John the Baptist come back from the dead. So we're just seeing Jesus be Jesus, and he's showing people who he is and showing people what he does, and people's reactions to him are so varied. So we're going to see fear in the hearts of the disciples in a reaction to Jesus today. And the, the one most important question that we're going to come back to is how will we respond to Jesus? How are we, how are we going to see, like Mark wrote this whole thing so that we could see these aspects of Jesus, see how different people reacted and responded to him, and we are meant to leave with the question of, what do I think about Jesus? How will I respond to him? So let's watch the story unfold, and, um, and then we'll, we'll uh, answer those questions as we go along. So verse 45, 
Remember, he's just fed the 5,000 miraculously. And now this is right on the heels of that. Verse 45, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. So here is Jesus. We find Jesus up on the mountain, just did this miraculous thing with his disciples, and he gets them in a boat. You guys are going across to the other side. I don't know what he said, like, I'll catch you up later. I'll find another boat. I will, you know, miraculously teleport over there. Like, I don't know what they expected, but they're going. He's staying. He goes up on a mountain, and he is praying. And Jesus here is praying, like, kind of through the night. When it, when it says... Um, Nope, I'm not going to tell you yet because that's going to be a spoiler. But he doesn't uh, leave this mountain until like between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. the next uh, morning, like in the wee hours of the night. So he's got a long time just up there praying. And what, what I love about this is it's, again, it's showing us more and more of who Jesus is. If you recall from last week, Jesus and the disciples went to where they're feeding the 5,000 because it was supposed to be a spiritual retreat for them. It was going to be time away. Hey, you guys have been through a lot. I just sent you out to do ministry. We're going to go sp- take some time to just be by ourselves and pray, and what's waiting for them is a crowd, and they get an opportunity to experience connection with God in a different way. It's beautiful, Um, but Jesus sends them away, and he still is like, okay, I'm going to do it, and if the only time I can find to be with the Lord is staying up all night, I'm going to do it. I love that Jesus takes the time to do this, because what it is, is is this is Jesus modeling for us what it means to be a healthy human being. It's one where it's, it's honestly strange for me that Jesus is our model of prayer because I think of it like, like, like if you think of uh, humility, Jesus is our model for humility. Philippians 2 makes it really clear. If you want, like we should be humble. And how do you, how, how do we um, know what it looks like to be humble? Do what Jesus did. And you're like, okay, if there's one person in this entire universe that doesn't need to be humble, it's got to be the creator of the whole thing, right? Like he's the one that could stand there and be like, I am literally the man, okay, and you guys should all worship me, right? Which he, he kind of does, but he does it in a humble way somehow. He's our example of humility. Well, here he's also our example of prayer. He's the one that is God himself. He is like part of the Trinity, and so he presumably is like talking to himself all the time. I don't know like how. He's, he's communing with, with the Trinity all the time, and yet here he does. He steps away as a human being to spend time praying, and I just, I love that he is our model of this, like this matters. Sometimes you get the sense that maybe he's kind of doing it for our sake so that we know that this matters. Maybe it's just so that we can see that he's talking to the Father, but either way, he's just taking this time to do it. And it's beautiful because he is this source of infinite power. So all through the gospel, we've been seeing uh, Jesus healing sick people, uh, miraculously multiplying food, casting out demons. Like he's just been doing all this incredible things. And we're, we're getting this clear picture here of seeing this is not just him being like a, a wizard or a magician and just shooting power all over the place. It's him in this relationship with God um, showing us, like uh, Sharon Dowd is this theologian, and she says basically here's the difference between what Jesus does and what like a magical person would do. She says a magician conjures the gods with spells but a religious person and treats them with prayers. And I love that Jesus is clearly putting himself in this position of, hey, it's not, I'm not manipulating the universe. I'm not just using some power in some abstract sense. No, I'm with prayer asking the Father to be working. Lord, Lord, heal them. Lord, work. And, and so he spends his time in prayer sort of filling himself up, modeling what it is to work and to rest, to pray and to seek God. And uh, we get this picture. Now, here's the other crazy thing about this section. Do you remember early on in the, the Gospel of Mark, we were talking about how there's these new Exodus themes in the Gospel of Mark. So the Exodus was uh, God's people, uh, the Israelites, were in slavery for 400 years in Egypt. Um, God brought Moses to them, called Moses, convinces them to go do this. 
um, the ten plagues, and then they're, they're led out, uh, and they go through the Red Sea, right? Miraculously, the seas part. They walk across on dry land. God leads them across. They come into the, the, the wilderness where Moses goes up on the mountain, gets the Ten Commandments, talks to the people. God is leading them through the wilderness. They're 40 years in the wilderness. Remember all that? God miraculously provides the manna that uh, feeds them while they're wandering in the wilderness. And at the end of it all, they go into the promised land, the kingdom of God that he's promised for them. And we've seen hints and glimpses of this, and I said we'd keep seeing it throughout. So earlier, remember, Jesus is starting his ministry. He goes uh, in, gets baptized in the Jordan River, just like Israel went through the sea, right? He goes into the wilderness then, Jesus does, for 40 days to be tempted by the Satan, just like, um, just like Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, and then Jesus comes out of that and begins proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand, just like they went into the promised land. So we're seeing Mark is aware of these themes, and he's trying to point us to, hey, there's a new exodus happening. There's this slavery that we all are in, and Israel was still in at this point. God is doing a new thing. He's leading us out again. Um, and, and what do we see in this section? I'm going to do a little spoiler and a little looking back. Well, here is um, uh, Jesus has just miraculously fed uh, a large group of people in a desolate place, in the wilderness, right? Just like the manna in the wilderness, Jesus has just broken bread and given it to 5,000 people, 20,000 people just miraculously, okay? So we're, we're getting a little echo there. Um, here is Jesus going up on a mountain. Just like Moses went up on a mountain, when he came back down, he terrified the people because they saw and heard all the things from, the, from the, the top of the mountain. And Moses, when he comes down, his face is glowing. He's just freaking everybody out. Well, here's Jesus up on a mountain. He's going to go down. He's going to freak the disciples out. Um, the, 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 the Israelites walked through the Red Sea on dry land while Jesus is about to walk through the sea, on top of the sea, actually, miraculously. Um, and then the, the uh, Israelites in the Old Testament walked into the promised land, into the kingdom, and we're going to see a picture of all this ending with a little glimpse, a little picture of the kingdom of God. I, so those things aren't the point, but I do think that Mark is writing this, and he's telling us what happened with Jesus in such a way that we're cluing in, especially a Jewish audience at the time would have been like, my goodness, that's just like what Moses did. That's just like what Yahweh did in the Old Testament, leading his people out. And I think we're meant to see there is this clear sense where Jesus is coming as the new Moses, the new king, the Messiah that is going to lead us in uh, to where we're meant to go. Beautiful pictures of all these things being highlighted um, as we walk through. So Jesus, up on the mountain, just like Moses, he comes down. What's going to happen next? Um, next couple of verses here. In verse 47, it says, When evening came... The boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, um, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. We're just going to pause right there. Situation, just picture Jesus putting the disciples in the boat, and he's watching them go, and kind of all night long, they're having a hard time crossing this lake. And, um, and I say lake because it's the Sea of Galilee, but it's... Um, it's like the size of Clear Lake. It's like a, a fourth the size of Lake Tahoe. It's not a huge body of water, but they're there. And there's this strong headwind coming. Now, who, like who knows, right? But, but interestingly, when Israel goes through the Red Sea, how does the sea part it? It says that God, uh, Yahweh, blew this strong wind across the waters all night. And that's how the waters spread. So it, it's a windy night on the lake, and they're, they're not making their way through there. And so Jesus comes. Just like Israel walked through the sea, Jesus comes walking on top of the sea. A really interesting connection. It even says Jesus meant to pass them by. So he's going he's gonna to go ahead of them. And, and uh, you know, there's this part of me that's like, like, 
I don't know, Jesus is just beating them in a foot race or something. I don't know. But he's, he's trying to get ahead of them, like as if he's going to lead them back to where they're going. Okay, And so he's their shepherd. He's their Moses figure. He's going to go. And we're getting this picture. As Jesus walks on top of the water, we're getting this picture of like a transfigured Jesus. In a few weeks, we're going to see what's called the transfiguration, where Jesus is, um, goes up on a mountain, he's praying, and all of a sudden, a few of the disciples that are with him see, like, his, his whole uh, being changes. He's, like, suddenly glowing, and he's with, like, Moses and Elijah, and it's just this picture of, oh my goodness, we, like, see him. He's still human, but he's, like, so much more than that at the same time. They get a, a glimpse of what's really happening with Jesus. Well, I think this is, like, a mini transfiguration. Another side of Jesus suddenly comes through where, like, yes, like, Jesus is there. He's walking amongst us. He's eating like we are. He's, he's walking place to place. But here he is just sort of strolling across the water as if, like, you know, water just does what Jesus wants it to do. He wants it to be a road right now, so it functions like a road for him. And he just walks across the whole thing. It's a picture of Jesus just sort of fully at home in the world that he made. You know, he's the creator of it all, and he's just at home. Like, yeah, okay, I'm going to go to the side. Like, I will just walk across. It's a beautiful picture of Jesus as, like, really the king of the world. Um, God made a world, and he put Adam in there to rule it, and he spent time with um, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It's almost like Jesus is here as, like, the new Adam, the, the real king of creation that can just sort of everything works the way that he needs it to as he walks through. It's another powerful reminder of the control that Jesus has over everything, um, the sea and the waves. Uh, remember in chapter 4, the disciples are in the boat. There's the storm. Jesus is asleep. And they wake him up, and he's like, you guys. And he's like, stop blowing to the wind, you just very casually. And you see his absolute control over everything because the waves stop and the wind stops. Here we're seeing this is the other side of just how much control and power Jesus has. Just casually walking across. As soon as he gets into the boat with them, the wind stops. He's just in, quietly in control of the whole thing. Let's read a few more verses here. Um, so verse 48, um, he comes to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when, he, when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. He got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. For they were utterly astounded. They did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So what do we see about Jesus here? I think it's, it's a cool picture. Remember, there's a, a Jewish side of the lake, and there's a Gentile side of the lake. And Jesus is sending them from the Jewish side, where he just fed 5,000, now to the Gentile side. He can see they're not going to get there without his help. So he goes, like, to lead them across, and, um, and instead, they see him, and they freak out. They think he's a ghost, which, like, I get it. You know what I'm saying? I get it. My first assumption, if I saw someone walking across, like, a lake, would not be like, who's this guy? You know, I'd be like, that's, that's a ghost. You know, like literally that's a ghost. And so they're freaked out and they see him. And so Jesus, what I love is Jesus came in this world to be Emmanuel. He came to be literally God with us, right? Laid, laid down like um, his, um, some, some of the things he enjoyed as, as part of the Trinity to be like, oh, I'm going to come and be with the people. Emmanuel is God with us. So he came to be with them. Here he is just walking across the water, doing his thing, and he sees the disciples freaking out. And instead of just leading on ahead, he says, okay, I'll, I, will, I will get in the boat with you. He's with them in this sense, a beautiful picture of him joining us again, of him being with us, of giving them what they need. But there's also this deeper side of it. So in the previous storm, in Mark chapter 4, 
the, 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 everything's storming all around, and they thought they were going to die, and Jesus just quietly calms it all, and it's just all of a sudden they're in this still lake, this nice little float out on the lake, and the disciples are terrified, and they look around, and they're like, who is this person that even the wind and the waves obey him? Mark leaves the question totally unanswered. But in this storm, uh, you might ask the same question, who is this? They see Jesus, they're freaked out, he's like, hey, don't worry. He says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. When Jesus says, it is I, the actual like, Greek phrase there is ego eimi, it means I am. Take care, uh, or, or take heart, I am, don't be afraid. That's like literally what the phrase means. And if you're thinking, okay, I know that phrase, I am, that's how God, Yahweh, defined himself in the Old Testament. When he sent Moses to lead people out in the Exodus, Moses says, who do I tell them sent me? And uh, God says, speaking to Moses, tell them I am that I am has sent you. He, that's how he defines himself. It's his pure being. I am. It's where the name Yahweh comes from is that, that verb, I am. And so here's Jesus just sort of casually just throwing out there a, an I am statement. Hey, don't worry. Don't be afraid. I am. Jesus is showing us he's so much more uh, than what they think he might be. So much more than their speculations about what he might be capable of. So much more than what they think he might be able to do for them. Jesus is saying, I am. I, like, I'm Emmanuel, I'm with you, but I'm also, I am. I'm Yahweh and I'm here uh, for you. So they missed some of these things about Jesus. These disciples did. And, and I think the question we have to ask is, like, what are we missing about Jesus? What might me, we be missing as well? Because like the, um, the Israelites in the Old Testament who saw God do all these miraculous things and lead them out of slavery and provide miraculous food every morning for them on the ground and, and um, like water coming out of rocks and just all kinds of impossible things God's constantly providing, and yet their hearts were hard and they kept grumbling and they kept wishing they weren't there. In the same way the disciples are, man, with Jesus. Every step of this whole thing, like, like just encountering Jesus, watching firsthand. It was literally their lunch that he took and made into a meal for all these people, right? They, they were there. They handed him five loaves and two fish. And they're like, here, Jesus, this is what we've got. And he's like, okay, sounds good. I'll take that. And here is enough food now for 20,000 people. They saw it and experienced it. But still, in that close proximity to this whole thing, still their hearts are hardened. And they're in this place where, man, he, uh, people are... They, they see his power. There's no denying it. There's no, no denying that they saw his power. No denying that they saw what he was capable of. But there was something missing in their connection or their relationship to Jesus. That's, that's missing. It's this peace. It's this proof that you can uh, be in close proximity to Jesus and still miss the most vital thing of this entire deal. I think that the reminder for us today is that being around Jesus or being around Jesus-type things is not the goal. It's not enough. It's not really what we're called to. And it's easy, like when we're church people, right, we're here because we're like, this matters. Worshiping together matters. Uh, gathering together matters. Hearing the word of God, reminding ourselves this matters. But we could be in these circles where we're constantly in the right place, hearing the right things, talking about the right things, even leading the right things. And we still might be in that close proximity, and we have to recognize just thinking Jesus is amazing isn't enough. Knowing that he's powerful isn't enough. Being close by and hearing all the lessons ourselves isn't enough. Being a huge fan of Jesus is not enough. There is something essential that they did not understand. It says um, in verse 52, they were astounded because they did not understand about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. So I, it just made me think, okay, what, what was it that they missed about the loaves, right? I mean, they saw it. They were part of it. They could see, like, this was a small meal. Now it's a massive meal. 
what did they miss and not understand about the whole thing? My guess is I think they probably missed the fact that this was not just about what Jesus could do for them, right? They saw Jesus' power. They saw him provide. It wasn't just about Jesus providing for them. Um, It wasn't just about the power of Jesus. It wasn't about the notoriety of Jesus. It wasn't about the growing number of followers of Jesus, right? It's exciting to be part of something that's successful. Like when you you pick a sports team, man, and you're like backing them like the Golden State Warriors like I did since I was a kid, and then all of a sudden they become really good, you're like, all right, like life is good. This is is my team and everything else. These days it's a little shakier again. You guys know about that as Kings fans. But it's not not enough. Uh, It's not enough for Jesus to be... Uh, for us to be there like, oh, this is great, man. Everyone's, like, imagine how cool it would be to be like, okay, yeah, we were the ones, people called us crazy when we started following Jesus around, but now look at him feeding 5,000 people, uh, 20,000 people here in this setting. Like, he is the man and we chose well, you know? Um, But that's not the point of it, right? It's not the notoriety or whatever. It's like Jesus has been showing them this entire time, this is who I am. Watch what I do so that I can show you who I am. And they keep coming back to, I think, okay, Jesus, yes, we can see what you can do. Yes, Jesus, we can see what you can do. And he's like saying, no, I want you to see who I am. He's the Messiah. He's the true king of the world. He is God become flesh. He's Yahweh come to like be with us and posture himself in such a way that, that, he, that we know that he is for us. I think like the, the, the most amazing thing about who Jesus is that I think he's showing them all the time, but I think they keep missing is he, he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And the best way I can think to describe this is if you think of the tabernacle. So in the Exodus, God leads his people out of slavery, and they're in the wilderness, and he's like, hey, uh, like he was there literally like leading them a pillar of fire at nighttime and a pillar of cloud in the daytime, so they're seeing something of the glory of God all the time. But he has them build a tabernacle, which is this massive tent that like this is God's house. Like wherever we go, wherever we live, God is here living in the midst of us. So just think of how incredible it would be what you would learn about the heart of God to know he's not just up there giving us rules from on high. He's not just up there like as a safety in case we ever need something. No, he's up there, but he also is coming down here in the tabernacle to live amongst us. Wherever you live, Israel, God is living right there in your midst. Incredible. When they get into the promised land, they build the temple to make it permanent to say, hey, we're living here and God is living here. This reminder that he is God with us. It's incredible. So Imagine what you would gain and know about the heart of God for us. How does God view us? Well, he must love us a lot. He must care about us a lot because he wants to be with us by living in this neighborhood. Well, when Jesus comes, when Jesus is born, it's like we sit here and we think, man, how how does God view us? Is he angry with us? Is he disappointed in us? Is he just trying to guide us? Is he just trying to give us what we need? No, we get this reminder in Jesus that, no, he actually literally came in this earth, to take on flesh, to live amongst us as one of us in this incredible way. What do we know about the heart of God from the very um, existence of Jesus? And we know that he is for us because he wants to be with us. That is incredible. We could spend our whole lives thinking that, but we might miss it if all we're seeing is just the idea that, man, you know, what does my Christianity do for me? Well, it kind of gives me a, a moral compass. It gives me a sense of moral direction. I know what I should do and what I should not do. I know which people are, uh, are doing the right thing and which people are sinning. Like, sometimes I think our Christian faith, re- like, reduces down to that. It's our moral sensibility. We might think that, like, our Christianity or Jesus is just here to provide for our needs. When I go through a crisis, when I need something, when I'm hoping for something, I will turn to him and he will give me what I need. 
We might think that Jesus is here primarily just to forgive our sins and to, to heal our guilty consciences and those kinds of things. A vital aspect of what he came to do. But it's not the entire thing itself. I think the key to recognize is Jesus came as God there to be with us. So when they see, when the disciples see this power of God on full display in the life of Jesus, he's walking on the lake and they get terrified and they just don't understand what is happening with all this. I think what they're meant to see is not just power that's next to them, not just power that's beside them, not just power that they're watching, but like power that is with them and for them and connected to them. What I think they were missing was their own connection to that power that is Jesus. It's one thing to be like, and that person is powerful. It's another thing to think, think okay, that person is powerful and he's my dad, he's my friend, he's the one that loves me, he's the one that's with me. Um, first service, it didn't go over well, but I explained, it's like, if you see me on the street or if you're new to the church and you see me, you're like, man, that guy is strong and powerful, I could probably beat me up, right? I'm sure that's what everybody's thinking. And, um, and so it's like maybe intimidating for some of you to have such a strong person. You guys, I'm being really facetious here. But, um, but for my girls, for my daughters, right, it's like all this strength they get as, like, the person that can, like, pick them up. I still can. I still can. They don't let me do it very often. But um, the, the person that, like, like, all my strength is, like, to do, you know, chores around the house, like, make, like, my, whatever strength I have as a human being is for my family, right? Or for my, like, it's, like, it's not just separate power that's, like, scary because it's separate for me. It's, like, this is mine. I'm connected to it, right? I belong to it and vice versa. I, I really think with Jesus, it's, like, one thing to be, like, He's capable. He can do it. It's another thing to be like, and I am intimately connected to him. Who he is uh, affects at a core level who I am. And honestly, vice versa. He invites that connection. So I read this book a number of years ago that's called With. That's just the whole name of the book, With. It's by a guy named Sky Jathani. And it was really um, helpful for me to unlock some of the ways that I view my connection in my relationship with God that I think gets at this. So I'm going to share with you uh, this quote from him. So he says, my concern is that we are inoculating an entire generation to the Christian faith. So what he's basically saying is we're going we're gonna to get this whole next generation and we're going to give them a, uh, make them immune to the Christian faith because we're going to present it as something it's not. So he says, many come with a holy desire to know God, to experience his presence in their lives, to be cared for like sheep entrusted to a meek and gentle shepherd. But that is not what they see or experience. The lights are never turned on to reveal the beauty that is present just behind the shadows. To quote G.K. Chesterton, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. So I'm just going to pause from the quote here real quick. He's saying G.K. Chesterton, a generation or two ago, was like, we haven't, we haven't tried Christianity and found it lacking. We've we found it difficult and we never tried it, okay? And Sky Jathani is, I think, intuitive for our generation, and he reframes it. So he says, perhaps it might be more accurately said that in our time, Christianity has not been presented, uh, uh, sorry, Christianity has not been presented, and therefore it's been left untried. But there are moments, unexpected and undeserved, when a coin is dropped and our vision is transformed by a burst of light. It might be only a brief glimpse, but in those moments, we see the world behind the shadows. We see an entirely different way of relating to God, and we long for more. What I think he's saying is what generations uh, are coming to the church to see, that's like, okay, I want this, I want to be led by a good shepherd. I want a connection with God. I'm seeing there's something compelling about who Jesus is. And when they come to our churches, it's like they see, oh, I see. It's not about connecting with this person of Jesus, this Godhead. It's like 
following these rules. Or it's like falling in line on these things. It's like this system around, okay, I see what it is. No, I'm not that interested in that. And he's saying we keep failing to present the heart, the truth of what Christianity is meant to be um, because we've got caught up in the externals. It's like we're so close to Jesus and the things of Jesus that we miss the fact that we're not rightly related. So I think this is helpful. He gives five prepositions. And he says, here's some of the ways that we go wrong. So he says, sometimes we live our life from God, okay? And that's all about, like, we live our lives. We want the blessings that God provides for us in our times of need, but we don't want God himself. So we want what he can give us more than who he actually is. Or he says, sometimes we live life over God. And what he means by that is, like, we don't really need God because we follow proven principles, godly principles, biblical principles. And if we do things this way with these strategies, then everything's going to be fine. So we don't really even need God all that much. I'll say I, I feel like many of the Christian books I read, especially books on Christian leadership, feel like this to me. He says sometimes we go about living our life for God. Okay, when we live life for God, we're just like looking, we're living our life, and we're like, I'm going to accomplish big things for God. I'm going to put myself out there. I'm going to pour myself out so that I can do things in the name of God because he's worthy of it. And he's like, that's fantastic, but that's not the heart or the core of this whole thing. Or sometimes he says we live life under God where it's just a cause and effect, and if I obey, then I'll be blessed and things will be good. If I disobey, I'm going to be punished or maybe I'll be cursed, and I feel like a lot of us live in that space where it's, it's, it's more formulaic or transactional. What does he call us to? He says, we should be doing what the Bible presents is we live life with God. Remember, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Life with God. Recognizing that at the end of the day, who Jesus is, is he's God who came to be with me. So I desire to be with him. That's what he wants is that connection, that, that vine and branch type of reality. I don't live my life trying to make God happy because I recognize that he's already happy with me. He's pleased in who I am because of what Jesus has done. My life becomes not just trying to communicate with God as though he's far off, but it becomes a life of communion with God where it's like he is here always in everything and I can connect with him at any moment because he's literally all around me trying to connect with me, um, becoming more aware of his presence. It's about living life, enjoying this connection to Jesus that doesn't always feel perfect, but it's always there, and we're always pursuing it, and it becomes something we can invite other people into. Our, our mission as a church is that we are seeking to glorify God by finding life in Jesus together and inviting others to do the same. And, and honestly, Jesus is going to start talking about how he's going to lay down his life and die, and the disciples are like, mind blown, like, how could you possibly? No, no, no. But honestly, if we see Jesus as he really is, Maybe it shouldn't surprise us that he begins to speak about dying for us because we begin to believe when he says, I love you, I'm here for you, I'm here to be with you, I'm here to heal you. Those things we begin to see and believe. So anyway, I think that reframing for me has been so helpful because there's a lot of good paths that we can take in the church where you would just fit right in, right? Like nobody expects more of us uh, than, than this, but there is something I think the disciples in that type of close proximity to Jesus still missed it. They couldn't quite understand what Jesus was getting at. Their hearts were hard. And it's like, man, we need, to, we need to just constantly offer ourselves back to the Lord. I think we're meant to read the Gospel of Mark, seeing like the disciples were so close. How could they have missed it? And honestly, you'd like to think this is a weak moment. They're going to get better. They don't get much better. They're, there's a couple of bright spots, and then they ends with one of them betrays Jesus, and the rest of them go running off. Like it just keeps getting more unflattering for the disciples, even though they're right there and they can see it all. So I think we have to stop and just say, okay, Lord, 
I'm here, I'm close to this thing, it matters to me, I feel like I'm invested, but am I really? Like, Lord, open my heart, take the, the hard, crusty stuff that's building up around my heart and chip it off again and again and again a thousand times so that I can be close and connected to you. So what does it look like if we, if we uh, start on the mountain with Jesus, come down, go through the sea like he's doing, and come into the promised land, into the kingdom of God, what does it look like? I think we get a little glimpse at the end of this passage. Um, and so verse 53, when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that, that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. So I think we're getting this picture that, like, everybody wants more of Jesus. And I think that's beautiful. I don't think they understand all the way. I don't think they get the, the sense of connection with him. But there's something compelling about Jesus. And everywhere Jesus goes, people are compelled by him. And they're running to him. And they're just like, this person needs Jesus. That person needs Jesus. Anyone that needs Jesus, let's just get him to Jesus. So I think they, uh, Jesus is where I need to be there, compelled by him. And I would say that's probably still true today. Like you've all probably heard, there's people that are like, ah, I don't really like the church anymore, but I still find Jesus really compelling. I think that's fascinating. I think it's true. I think it's amazing. But I would say even then, remember, there's still that sense of like, many people are compelled by Jesus, but most of us won't open ourselves up to Jesus for that deeper connection. So let's watch that dynamic. We get this beautiful picture of the power of Jesus. He's, he shows up, everyone's waiting, and they're just like, they're just trying it out. You know, it's just like, hey, let's bring this person that can't walk over to Jesus. Oh, he healed him. Okay, let's find someone that has like a demon. Okay, bring him. Jesus heals them. Okay, uh, can we find someone with no legs? Let's bring them to Jesus. Like, I just love that they're like literally running around, and they're just like, everybody just needs a piece of Jesus. Let's bring him to him. And Jesus is just there and he's being what everybody needs, you know? All they have to do is just touch the edge of his robe and, and they're being healed. Like it's incredible, the power of Jesus. And I think it is a picture of the kingdom of God because where this all ends is Jesus dies, he rises again, he's absent for a couple thousand years here, but he's coming back again. And when he does, it says at the end of Revelation that uh, he's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. He's gonna, he, there's going to be no more sin. There's going to be no more death. Like he's going to heal all of our sickness, everything else. And here's a picture in real time when Jesus was here the first time of like, oh, this is what the kingdom will look like. Everyone just coming to Jesus and just a touch and we're healed and we're made whole again. We're restored. We're in our right mind. We're in a healthy body. It's a picture of Jesus just giving us, hey, here's what the kingdom's going to be like. And it's going to go back to being broken and we're all going to hurt for a while. But this is where we're headed. I love that reminder that Jesus can and, and, and honestly does do everything we need. Now, we've talked about it enough to know he's not a genie. He's not just saying, oh, what would you like? Okay, coming right up. Um, sometimes the things we think we need, we don't need. Jesus knows what we actually need, but there is this reminder that he is the source of it all. But here's the, the question I want to leave us with at the end of this whole thing. The disciples had seen Jesus do just countless miracles by this point, but still were told their hearts were hard. They weren't getting it. Everyone is eager to see Jesus do more and more and more things. So everyone's watching, everyone's waiting. And if we are, in any sense, whether we've been like deep Christians for our entire lives or whether this is a new thing for you, I think the thing we've got to see is let's watch as we go through the Gospel of Mark. Let's watch Jesus do the amazing things. Let's be in awe of his power. Let's see what he's capable of. But at some point, let's remember, we've got to jump in. We've got to dive in. We've got to find what's hard about our hearts and just say, Lord, do it. And there, there is this... Um, miraculous promise in, in the book of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, 
looking at, at, at the people of God in, um, in Ezekiel 36, and he says, I, what I'm going to do is one of these days I'm going to come to my people, and I'm going to take the heart of stone, that hard heart they have, and I'm going to take that out of them, and I'm going to give them a heart of flesh. And I'm going to take my spirit, and I'm going to put my spirit inside them, and they're going to they're gonna live. They're going to come alive from the inside. And I think that's the miracle that's promised. That eventually is the miracle we see with the disciples that it happens for them. And I would just say it's the miracle that all of us need. So we're here we see Jesus, let's, let's geek out on how incredible he is. Let's rave and sing worship songs about how amazing he is. But as we do it, let's remember, okay, what is my connection to you? So I'm going to give us a minute here. Uh, we're going to sing some more songs. The band's going to come up. And as we just prepare ourselves to sing a couple more songs, I just want us to, in, in silence for a minute here, just process two questions. One is, Jesus, who are you to me? What's that connection? Jesus, who are you to me? And the other one, Jesus, who am I to you? Let's just ask the Lord, sit in his presence and ask him, what is that relationship between us? Let's sit quietly in a minute, and then we'll, we'll sing in a minute. Lord, I believe that right now you are inviting many of us into some better connection and relationship with you. Lord, this is a scary passage for me because it shows how easy it is to be close, but still so far. And so, Lord, I just pray this morning, Lord, you, you are all that we need and so much more. You are there inviting us constantly to see you truly, to connect with you truly, Lord, our hearts are here, and we open them to you. Lord, would you break every hard thing about our hearts, and would you soften us? Would you bring life where there's death? Would you bring hope where there's doubt and fear and decay? Lord, make us alive. Connect us to you. Help us to see you as you truly are. Lord, I believe that there's nothing you want more for us than that. And I just confess how easy it is to slip away from that personally. Lord, bring us close to you as we sing, as we pray, as we live our lives. Lord, may we see you truly and connect with you deeply. We thank you for who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name.